Today on Blind Insights, are you okay? Mental health in the era of COVID-19. The ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is something that we make and could just as easily make differently. David Graeber, 1961 to 2020. Welcome to Blind Insights. I'm joined by David Olney. How are you, David? I'm very well. Now ask me the important question. <laughs> are you okay? I am okay. I'm smiling. I've got a pink coffee. We're in the studio. We're sitting in the traditional spots where I sit opposite you. Mm. I'm on the chair where the back's a proper height as opposed to the one that someone really fat messes with. <laughs> Whoever you are, stop messing with the chair. Yeah. More importantly, are you okay? Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, I am okay. That's why I can ask all those questions. Oh, I mean, the person messing with the chair. Yeah. Well, I know they're not. seriously wrong. Because yeah. physically, to want a chair to be that shape means they're in serious <laughs> trouble. <laughs> well, you know, and as much as we make light of it, uh, it's a, it's a, a really um, important, it's a really important subject. Um, you know, it's... Uh, yeah, the chair is unimportant, which is why I'm mm, making gags about it. Definitely. Are you okay is very important. But also notice... How many people are uncomfortable to answer the question or even ask it of each other? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we can... There, there, there is um, a plethora of, of Australian men who aren't sure how to emote. I mean, th- th- just as one group, you know, mm. easy to draw on one. Well, um, that's, I think, the majority who, you know, are you okay is aimed at. Mm. Trying to make the question as neutral and not about mental health as possible. Yeah. So that someone who is uncomfortable to ask a question that it perhaps got an emotional consequence can ask it as someone who's afraid to answer the question. But mm. at the very least, if someone can ask someone, it shows they care. And knowing someone cares is very powerful. So even if that is all we can get out of are you okay initially, mm. that there isn't a deep conversation, I'm cool with people at least knowing other people care. That's a start. Yeah. More is good, but more might take time and people learning to be more comfortable with being an emotional being. Do you think that part of it being like a specific day trivializes that idea? I think in a world where we're so bombarded by media, as I understand better now, studying media, mm. I used to think these individual days were silly. Right. But I now understand with the deluge of images, sounds, snaps, you know, snippets of things, mm. you really have to do something now and go, Will people see or hear this 50 times in a day? Because that's right. now what makes it stick. Yeah. So repetition's gone from being three to five times to have an impact. I think now it has to be 50. Wow. So it's got to be 50 in a day. So it's got to pop up on social media. It's got to pop up on some posters. You've got to hear it being talked about on the radio. Yeah. You've got to hear it on a podcast you listen to that's broadcast every day. You have to have a chat about it with your friends. You have to have a chat about it with your family. Mm. And then it's like, okay, yep, that stuck long enough because it was the strongest message in an avalanche of meaningless messages today. That's uh, it's sort of a sad state in some ways because... Yeah, we've become so overstimulated that yeah. to get anything to stick now, I think we do actually need you know, whatever the day is, are you okay day? Like the classic one I remember from being a young adult was Red Nose Day. Mm. Which was you had to put on the red clown's nose uh, after sudden in, sudden infant death syndrome. Yeah, SIDS. Yeah. So each year, my aunt used to stick a big red nose on the front of her combi van. 
<laughs> which I thought was awesome. Yeah, that is cool. You know, that was a great thing to do on that day yeah. because it really made it obvious on the front of a combi van with his dead flat front, almost like a brick driving down the road, mm. that he was this red nose sticking out the front going, ha, ha. <laughs> I mean, you know, if we can get even just, you know, um, a small portion of uh, the population who wouldn't otherwise think about those things, it really does raise awareness to, to, to participate in those kinds of events yep and yeah. the more times that awareness is raised the more times people go well i know people care about me maybe i'll actually answer the question yeah yep yeah because that takes a lot of courage to ask and to answer that question mm. and for both people to be courageous at the same time mm. is actually a big deal so this takes me to my next point because when i see my peers or the, the way that I see people most often engage with this is, is via social media. Mm. And it will be something like a generalized status that says, you know, you can talk to me if you need. Mm. Um, the idea being that everyone in your newsfeed, it, you would feel comfortable having that kind of conversation. Which with. I think is a very bizarre concept. Um, yeah, I guess it, for, for a lot of people is, is a little bizarre. But, and, and, but then, you know, that, the unfortunate part about that is not only do you have to have the courage to answer that question, You've then got to have the courage to strike up a conversation with someone who's not directed that question at specifically you. Specifically you. in private where the two of you were sharing time or working beside each other and there was some deep yeah. or at least practical connection. So I'm not saying that there's no utility in making the generalized status, but... Um, but what are you doing above and beyond that yeah, is our question. Yeah. Like the generalized status is a good way of making it clear this should be being talked about on this over-idealized artificial medium called social media. Mm. But mm. what are you doing above and beyond that? Mm. And, and again, listeners, that's where we really got into today's title, is everyone saying that COVID has been so deleterious for mental health. And what we want to argue today is COVID is perhaps the straw that has overstretched and overstrained the camel's back. Mm. But that we've had decades of things that have gradually eroded people's mental health. And we need to acknowledge that as much as it's easy to label COVID at the moment and say, well, we should you know, look after each other's mental health because of COVID. No, we should stop the forces that erode mental health in the first place. Mm. And we should do the things that build up mental health so that when horrible events like COVID happen, everyone is in a better state to look after each other and themselves. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it feels like um, a bit of a catch-all. Yeah, it's very convenient mm. to go, oh, because of COVID, our mental health is all suffering. Yeah. Whereas I think the first one I'd like to start with today is you know, something we've talked about a little bit here and more on you know, strategic on. And that's the, you know, the impact of terrorism on the world. That if we go back and look at the impact of 9-11 on the West as a whole mm. and the Bali bombings on Australia in particular, that is the point where both major political parties learnt that if they said, we will make you safe, but you should be afraid of all the scary things in the world, and if you're scared enough, then you'll vote for us because we will make you safe, <laughs> is the moment where in most Western democracies with modern medias, we institutionalized fear yeah. as a normal day-to-day bread-and-butter part of the political and media circus. And I'm going to call it a circus deliberately because I now understand that's what it is. <laughs> I used to think politics was a circus and maybe media wasn't. Now I know they both are. <laughs> Sivani of study. Used to think it, now I know it. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, it's another thing to be afraid of, I guess. Especially, well, perhaps even no coincidence that you know we're all talking about the the war on terror being over as Mm. as you you know the U.S. pulls out of Afghanistan. Mm. Nothing's fundamentally changed, other than they decided they weren't willing to do what was necessary to win. Well, yeah. But also, like how, you know, I'm I'm not saying this is any kind of conspiracy. It's just probably a little bit convenient that the news cycle can go from talking about terrorism and easily talk about COVID. In well, COVID provided way. a wonderful shift yeah. to go from terrorism to COVID. When we come out of COVID, it will be into the new Cold War uh, with China. I, again, I want to reiterate, I don't see like a, there's not a, no, a there's purposeful no, link. No. It's just that it's kind of convenient, I yeah. guess. Yeah. It, it's very helpful. Yes. In the, they can change narrative without having to change the narrative. Mm. The narrative has been changed for them. You know, in media and political terms, it's an opportunity for a reset. Yeah. So 9-11 gave us a reset from, all right, the news cycle was getting a bit grim, but terrorism gave both the media and the political elite the opportunity to just double down on fear and negativity mm. as things that ran politics and kept the media making money in an area where traditional media was gradually making less and less money. And if we look at it now, if we look in podcast land, how many comedy podcasts there are, (laughs) how many sci-fi fantasy podcasts there are, Mm. it's quite clear that people don't want the permanent negativity and fear. No. And they've made the products they want, and they listen to the products they want to escape it. Yep. Which is awesome. And guess what? The big companies don't do a good job of it because there's not as much money in that, therefore it's only really for enthusiasts yeah. rather than big companies. Yeah. So if we take you know, the position that fear was normalised in the months after 9-11, the other side of this is critical is you can't normalise fear if people still have the ability to do their own risk assessment and believe in the answer to their own risk assessment. Mm. So what the speed at which we moved to a fear-based political and media circus tells us is that the majority of people couldn't do their own risk analysis and weren't willing to hold the line and go, stop telling us rubbish. Stop telling us terrorism is an existential threat. Mm. Stop telling us that the war on terror is going to make the world safe. How can you make the world safe when you're simply killing people without changing the underlying conditions that make them want to fight anyway. So we've got a fascinating situation. They took advantage of fear, but they discovered another thing in the process. But yeah, it's funny, you know, it's like um, there's a, a comedian, Steve Hughes, just made this wonderful point. This is probably over a decade now um, in, a, in a live set where he said, you know, we're going to have a war on terror. You know, How can you have a war on terror? What's the consequences of war? Mm. You know, fear. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And terror. Yeah, exactly. You're going to have a a war on the very consequences of the thing that you're fighting against. So I think what we've (laughs) created here is a solipsism. Yeah, yeah. You know, we've become, we've created a theory of solipsism. (laughs) I wish I could add one more word with the S. A super theory of solipsism. So I guess pandemic, pandemonium. (laughs) Yeah, well, we get there in a bit. Yeah. So if we go. Fear is now be afraid of the neighbor, be afraid of the migrant, Mm -hmm. be afraid of that other country, Mm -hmm. be afraid of that other religion, be afraid of that different culture, be afraid of those people that are talking in their own language over there in the corner, even though they're all smiling and look happy. Mm. Be afraid of everything. 
and we're not teaching people how to do risk assessment. I know this because when I taught you lot to do it in complex problem solving, everyone said it was new. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So this is a bit of a worry. <laughs> what are universities for? Hint. <laughs> so, right, we have a bit of a problem there. Not teaching risk assessment. Mm. Having taught enough people who've learnt to do uh, risk management, you know, via kind of TAFE courses and other short courses, mm. uh, all that's going to teach you is that you want to be unconscious. It's follow the bouncy ball process, right. tick all the boxes to make sure that legally you're not in the purview. Well, arguably, that, that's how it works at universities too in terms of risk assessment. It's just Precisely. maybe a little bit more Im- Im- implicit rather mm. than explicit. Yeah. Whereas what we really want is for people to go, is absolute safety possible? Mm. I would argue no. How much risk am I comfortable with and in what situations? Would you even want to be entirely safe? It's yeah. To me, that's what heaven sounds like. Yeah. Where yeah. nothing can go wrong. How yeah. boring. No risk. No risk, no reward. No, I think it, 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 these are problems that come up with, you know, the ideas of utopia for sure. Yeah. Can you ever really have any a place where... I mean, yeah. And this is where I wish we could play bits of music in the middle of episodes <laughs> without copyright issues. Because <laughs> now we could listen to Dystopia by Megadeth. <laughs> and I could happily bounce along on my chair the whole length of the song. And then we could return to the episode. So if you feel <laughs> the need at this point, pause the episode temporarily. Go find your music streaming service of choice. <laughs> listen to the song Dystopia. Mm. If you like it, listen to the whole album. Now, you're probably wondering, why has David gone off on a tangent this big? Mm. Well, my reason why is the day we were recording this, two days ago, Megadeth started touring for the first time since COVID. Wow. And they started in Austin, Texas. And Kiko Lurero, the guitarist, made a wonderful video about running around Austin and his hotel room and sound check and setting up for the (laughs) gig and the first night's concert. I'm like, why? Why am I missing out? Because <laughs> I don't imagine that Dave Mustaine and Kiko Lerero are ever going to come to Adelaide. Probably not, if they come to Australia at all. Yeah, I'm going to be going to somewhere else then. Yeah. Well, hopefully that that you know, hopefully people can do that. The whole idea of vaccine passports that might happen but yeah well we can get into the fear aspect of that in a bit so listeners i apologize profusely for the digression but i felt the need Mm. and entertain me and tim doesn't seem to be making noises like he's going to edit it out so we're probably okay yeah we're good right (laughs) so we've got fear okay we've got we're not teaching risk assessment and then we get the next pillar in the adverse effects on mental health of our era and i think that is social media Because whatever Zuckerberg's rhetoric was, maybe social media would not have been the dangerous thing it is if people could only do it on their computer and they would take photos out in the world and come home and build a story. So it was about sharing the day you'd had in the world with people. Yeah. But I think the combination of social media and then smartphones. So any time you're somewhere unfamiliar where you could either interact with a new environment and new people or look at what your friends are doing, your existing friends, look at their idealised day, look at the best thing that happened to everyone this week and shut out the real world where there's real people and real things that you could engage with. Mm. The combination of social media and the smartphone as of about 2012 onwards 
is to my mind the next big thing that starts deteriorating mental health. Because as well as people now being afraid of really, well, big obvious difference, which is what post 9-11 world said, that anything very different to you is frightening, hide and we'll protect you. (laughs) Once we have social media on smartphones, we go, oh, I feel a bit uncomfortable being in a new environment with new people. Mm. Oh, what am I going to do? I'm going to just look down at my phone, my pre-existing friendship group, and I'm going to make my world smaller, and I'm not going to practice talking to a new person, and I'm not going to practice investigating an unfamiliar environment. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to first day of complex problem solving. First time you ever met me. Yeah. Because half the class knew me. Uh, as people come in, what did they do? Did they sit quietly or did they start talking to me and each other? Do you remember? Mm, you, yeah, you. There were definitely a few people talking to you. Yeah, but at already. least there was noise. Uh, yes, 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 yes. Okay. Uh, if they weren't, yeah, they were also talking to each other, I should say, yeah. So okay, it was so it was communication all around. Definitely. Was that normal? Uh no, not for the first lesson, no. Yeah, like yeah. it might build up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But to have that in the first week. Yeah. So yeah, the, the assumption from my end was that, oh, I guess just a bunch of people who decided to take this class together. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Whereas actually most people really. were in it were, you know, they had a couple of friends in the class, mm. but most very, people very quickly turned, you know, to the person on the other side of them they didn't know and included them. No, 100%. I think friendships were actually made in that class, yeah. yeah. So, you know, listeners, I'll give you an example of how this world changed from 2012, you know, when we get the smartphones with social media, to when I came back to university, having stopped teaching in 2015 and came back in 2017 after there was a debacle that the university needed cleaned up. So I, I come back, finish teaching a course over three weeks, start the next semester, and one of the rooms I need to teach in is in the bottom of a building called Bar Smith South. And if you're the only blind person with a white cane going against the stream when everyone comes out of that building, it's a disaster for your cane, your feet, and you make lots of people's days harder because they don't want to tread on your feet and your cane, but they they do anyway because they're looking at their freaking phones. (laughs) So I would go down there 10 minutes early. The first day I did that, I found half my chute sitting on the floor outside the room. No one was talking to anyone. Whoa. Mm. Now, because I'd turned up In the first week, a couple of them knew me from the semester before where I'd been there for three weeks. Yeah. So I started talking to them. Gradually, other people join in that conversation. (laughs) The next week I get there, three quarters of the tutors there. Yeah. But they don't talk to each other until I get there. Wow. In week three, I said, do you lot literally wait for me to turn up before you start talking? And a couple of them had the the, the guts to say, yes. (laughs) I'm like, why don't you talk to each other? You're nice. The next week when I turned up, half the group had decided to have a conversation. Wow. But the other half sitting on the floor still were looking at their phones. Yeah. Now, I know this because, you know, walking with a cane is not silent. Mm. People on their phones don't know so I'm about to clobber their legs. Mm. People who are talking or paying attention do and either let me know or pull their legs up. Yeah. So I know if I come around the corner and there's legs stretched across the corridor that that Muppet is on their phone. Yeah, yep, yep. So what we see is from 2012 to 2017, there had been this transition to, I don't know these people, class hasn't started yet, I don't have to participate, so I won't. 
Yeah. Well, because, you know, you got to conserve your kind of social energy. Ah, uh, like conserving chi. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. So let's, let's look at the implications of this. Okay. Your social world doesn't get bigger. No. You're not exposed to difference. No. You don't practice a little bit of anxiety every day of talking no to a new person. Conscientious objection. No. You don't learn to deal with difficulty. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't develop a level of situational awareness that would help with risk assessment. Mm. And if that all sounds rather grim, there is a wonderful, terrible book called Reclaiming Conversation by Sherry Turkle mm. about what social media and smartphones have done to humans' ability to connect and talk. And the positive in her book, and I think the book is about 2018, 19, and really the book is about everything I've just been talking about, the consequences of this combination of the small glass device and social media. Mm -hmm. The wonderful thing she points out in her final chapter is the number of kids under the age of 10 who are going, Mummy, Daddy, put the phone down. Talk to us over dinner. Because little kids need it. Yeah. And the reason adults may actually regrow the ability to interconnect or to engage is because little humans need it. And if you screw up your little humans, you're going to feel guilty for life. When they don't have prefrontal cortex, you know, in- inhibitions to not, not say that. <laughs> yep. Those, you know. So the great thing is little human just says, mummy, daddy, put your phone down. Yeah. Which is fantastic. So the great thing is Sherry Turkle's book ends on a, you know, a positive that little kids are actually probably what will bring people back. Mm. But look at the logical flow on. I mean, yeah. that, that, you know, counter-arguments to that is I, one, <laughs> one thing um, Peter, Peter Thompson might have said on like a, a podcast ages ago was, you know, <laughs> mummy and daddy just uh, let their kid get raised by the iPad, you know, mm. um, sit down for four hours. and So I don't know, the... the, the yeah, but is that a counter argument? Is it okay? Do we want the kid raised by by the iPad? No, we, no, we don't. Well, I mean, <laughs> okay, so like you and I wouldn't. Um, no. it's but you know it happens. Yeah, I but guess it, the argument being is that do, do do some of them not even realize that they need to have the conversation because they so quickly and so easily get pulled into the same world? Yeah, well, again, that's the other side. The ones who say no are probably a minority, but at mm. least they are. Yeah, right. But, but you know, let, let's take this thing out of the uni environment. And go, all right, how many times, listeners, have you sat in a pub, you know, with your partner or friends, mm. and the next table has got four people on it? Yep. You can hear the cutlery moving, mm. but there's no talking. Mm. And I'll normally ask someone like Tim or my wife Karen mm. or whoever else I'm with, what are they doing? Mm. And the person will go, oh, they're all on their phones. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So they're eating one-handed yeah. while flicking or tapping on the screen and ignoring the people they're eating with. Yeah. Yeah. so again mental health implications Mm. you're sitting with people you could deepen connections you could get used to the idea of asking are you okay and maybe even answering the question right but instead you're staying in your little world of a beautiful screen idealist images only what people want to share how does that impact the real world things of what you actually want to do because how many people happily sit passively on the couch and watch an entire series on Netflix right. or Stan? Yeah. So my feeling is the more it's normalised the small screen and social media, the more we've normalised that 
flicking is active rather than passive. That selecting what to watch is the active bit. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it's funny you say that because that can often take longer than... The, the program. Yeah. Precisely. Because it's just like sitting on the phone. So now let's roll the next thing into this. That At the time of 9-11, the news cycle was already 24 hours a day and we've all heard the line about if it bleeds, it leads. Mm. And it's a terrible line. And I always thought, really? Does that have to be true? And then in my experience of years of doing media, I've found journalists are great then a good interview gets to the editors and the ed- editors hack the guts out of it. Yeah. And, you know, I've had some rather nice arguments with editors. I'm quite proud of them. I don't get asked to do those TV stations anymore, <laughs> but that's fine because they're retards. Yeah. You know, they want to put negativity and conflict in front of people. So now this year, here I am studying... Well, it, Because their job isn't to ask the good questions it's to sell the content yeah it's to sell content in an industry that is bleeding money yeah so traditional media is bleeding money and because i'm you know in the midst of studying strategic communications i now understand that the most high value news values you know are conflict and negativity Mm. and the best form of framing is conflict and negativity so on your small glass device that you use as a substitute for learning to interact in the world in the deep way that would grow your mind, mm. grow your emotional capacity to the greatest extent possible, the other thing you get, other than an idealised world that makes you question your own life, <laughs> is an endless cycle of negativity and conflict mm. brought to you by an industry desperate for cash, knowing they don't care whether knowing one more negative thing is good or bad, to only care that it generates a click-through and that click-through might generate revenue. Mm. Blah. <laughs> mm. I can now say blah, understanding it. Yeah, well, it's and it's very difficult. It's, it's, it is actually an abstraction from the audience's perspective to realise that, I think. Sometimes it's extremely obvious when you watch things like The Bachelor or whatever and it has a ridiculous amount of product placement. Mm. But um, you, when you're watching the news or when you're when you're engaging with those things that I actually don't think act in good faith because they, they act as if what they're doing is of public interest. No, no, no. They have lost the idea of news mm. as an objective thing to inform a population, yeah. to make reasoned decisions and do their own risk assessment uh, to we need to make money and the best way to do that yeah. is to show you conflict and scare you. Again... It, that's an abstraction from an audience's perspective. So it, mm. it, it's insidious, like it's a, it's sort of like insidious, like it's all, yeah. you know, not that I want to say that, you know, these people that head media companies are evil as much as I would want to say that. It's that... No, the necessity of making money yeah. means little compromise by little compromise has been made mm. over the last 20 years as revenues have dropped to either make things that look like social media, either an idealized life like The Bachelor with mm. large amounts of product placement like social media, Mm. or to use fear and conflict to try and get people to engage because historically negativity bias kept our species alive. Mm -hmm. So if you show us something negative, you show us conflict, we switch on going, I better learn that because I don't want to die. Yeah, yeah. So it defaults us unconsciously to an older part of our brain that will pay attention. It's, yeah, I I really struggle with the idea of whether they, they think about these things purposefully. Like, no, they incrementally got there until it was normalized. Yeah, exactly. Because the editors I've actually you know, yelled at mm. thought they were making cogent arguments back to me. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, which means that to their mind, it's still virtuous, right? Yeah, because yeah. they started in journalism for a virtuous reason and got morphed out of shape by what the industry's become. Yep. And yep. That, that's the interesting thing. This is why, you know, I'm very much a constructivist in terms of understanding how the world works. Mm. People are subject to environments and what is going on in those environments and will evolve in accordance with the pressures around them. Mm. And the opportunities around them, yep. but most importantly, the threats around them. Yeah. And threat, if you can't do a good quality risk assessment, perceived threat is huge because you can't tell the difference between something that is possible and something mm. that is probable. Touches on the, the idea of like a, almost like a workplace culture. It's a little bit more um, broad than that, but you know, for prospective journalists or media people out there you can observe even just from an interview um or looking at what that um media outlet puts puts out in the world mm. you can observe effectively what that what that culture is like and you, you know you can sit there mm. and say oh well i'm not going to let it affect me but you are a result of the people that you yep surround you're surrounded yourself. by it non-stop so the simple thing that find a mainstream example of journalism mm. where the questions are not asked to cause conflict yeah because that's the best way to get people to pay attention when they've got it on in the background yeah if they can get the guest to bite you've got conflict you've got negativity you know, the other day it was the ABC I think it was Sabra Lane uh, with Josh Frydenberg mm. and it was hysterical because she was going full negative conflict questioning and his media training is now so good that he didn't bite at a single thing and she actually genuinely got angry that she couldn't make him bite. Oh, it's interesting how that works, isn't it? Because yep. it, there's a predictability in the conflict path yep. that now that you can entirely prepare Which for means precisely you can media train people to go, you know, there's a dum-dum, mm. don't bite. Yeah. Because they're a dum-dum. Because they actually haven't asked you meaningful questions to let you provide meaningful no, answers and no. then dissected the answer, which might point out you know nothing. Yeah. <laughs> they're simply going to go with negativity and conflict ad nauseum. Yep. So, didn't mean to make it a media pick-on rant. Oh, but, sorry. <laughs> well, no, but it's, it's still significant to the story. Don't be sorry. But what we see here is fear was normalised. Mm. Risk analysis wasn't taught. No. Social media meant you could live somewhere safe. Mm. You could opt out of situational awareness. This had a growing impact on being able to do a meaningful risk assessment in the physical world. It made you question how fabulous your life was based on the idealized images. Yeah. It also exposed you more to the new variant of the sort of overcooked negativity conflict media cycle. So all these things are little erosions on mental health. None of them on their own is that big it will end the world or destroy people's minds. No. But this pile was starting to mess up people's well-being before COVID. Oh, yeah. Now plonk COVID on top. Hi, you could die. <laughs> if you don't die, you could get long COVID and be able to get out of bed. Yeah. You're going to live inside your apartment for the next six months and see nobody except for the people at the shops who will also be wearing masks and won't really want to interact because they're just as stressed out as we are. Mm. So is COVID the problem or was COVID the straw that pretty much pushed the camels back yeah. to the edge? Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, there was stacks of flammable 
Uh, yeah, we had the fire triangle. We had yeah. everything but ignition. We yeah. had tons of fuel. And we had plenty of oxygen. Yeah. And COVID gave us ignition. Well, I mean, arguably, like if we take something like uh, Johan Hari's book, Lost Connections, or we look yep. at um, uh, the coddling of the American mind. Put um, all the pieces from that together. They're all aspects right. that build up totally. to the camel being but overwhelmed. They also argue in some ways that things were already going downhill. It's yeah. This is almost like COVID is not even necessarily that big of an explanative mm it doesn't have that much explanative power because it was already like things were bad before well this gives us something convenient to talk about right oh because we'll we'll solve covid you know we'll do science yeah. we'll get rid of covid there's no doubt that it creates extra disconnection um mm. just to make a, a reference back to um riots that are happening in victoria mm. um in melbourne at the moment uh you've got tradies who uh or maybe not tradies because Bill Shorten said they're gym junkies. Oh yeah, Actually, they obviously look pretty Apparently, buff. some of the the riots were taken over by neo Nazis. But what um, neo Nazi gym junkies? Yeah, yeah. A tradie committed suicide, I think, yesterday, because of not having any work in the yeah. latest lockdown. They, yeah. they can't do anything, and then you can't make money, and there's yeah. like barely any support. Not like there was last time. Yep. Yeah, it's and if you don't know how to talk to people, and you don't know who to talk to, so all this thing of "Are you okay?" Yeah. you have to be able to ask, and someone has to be able to answer. Yep, 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 yep. So, at the moment, we're saying, "Oh, when COVID ends, well, we'll, we'll be better." No, we won't. We'll be back to the point we were before COVID. Mm. Now, positives that can potentially come out of this: COVID has pointed out how close to a dangerous mm. spot people's mental health has got. Yep that there are too many pressures and we have to start removing them. Mm -hmm. And that just getting past COVID is not enough. We need to teach proper risk analysis. We need to teach people situational awareness. We need people to re-engage with the unfamiliar world around them and the unfamiliar people around them and to deal with a little bit of anxiety every day so they learn out of it can come a bigger, more amazing world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, all that's possible... But it will depend on what people want to do at the end of COVID. But what we probably have to prepare for is at the end of COVID, people aren't going to behave that sensibly for a while because they have been stressed to such a degree. Mm -hmm. So we need to maintain the debate of are you okay, but perhaps ask a second question. And what do you think you need to be okay? And it's all well and good to ask people if they are. That's really important for now. But it has to go further and needs to also be, and what do you think you need to be okay? Because we can't just go back to the point we were at just before COVID when mental health was already in trouble. Mm. This is an opportunity because it's now so obvious that people are struggling to go, no, letting people struggle is not okay. Not knowing what to do is not okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And well, I don't know exactly how we start that other than by taking the conversation you know, beyond... You know, are you okay now under COVID to, well, what state were you in even before COVID? What state do we want to be in after? And how do we get to a state where people's well-being is you know, less difficult to manage? It's difficult to know what kind of uh, mechanism you would use to conduct that kind of survey, I suppose. I think if enough people talk about it, there will start being a sense in community mm. of something's missing or we think we need this. Right. And once people can name it as a group, then someone on Q&A can say they want it. 
Yeah. And some politician can look like a dick if they don't listen. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, wouldn't it be funny if you could almost... You, because I was thinking about how close that is to policy. You know, it's... it's. They did fear as a policy. So if we want to do health as a policy, yeah. it's going to have to come from us. Because what use is it to them? It's positive news. Yeah. Positive news makes us less victims that can be controlled. Uh, well, that's right. There's no... Well, I mean, it depends. You could argue mental health is a common enemy, but... Yeah, but that's using this fear language rather than the positivity of let's make sure that most people are that's okay. That's true, actually. I wonder whether that would be detrimental overall. Well, I think it's another thing that just allows us to keep focusing on the negative. Yeah, okay. Rather yeah, yeah. than on how do we make sure people are doing better and how do we make it that the story about someone doing well is a newsworthy story. Mm. Mm. You know, the one little human interest story at the end of the news should be the story at the start. This thing worked and it's awesome. So today, you know, listeners don't know exactly when you hear this, but you know, today there was a wonderful story in the ABC News about University of Queensland and I think University of Sydney have come up with a trap for cane toad tadpoles. Oh. Where they make this little pheromone that is something cane toad tadpoles go woohoo, but no other creature's interested in the smell, and wow. they wriggle in the funnels and get stuck in the trap. The biggest haul they've got out of one trap was what was it i don't remember anymore but it was thousands of tadpoles wow now this is only going to work where there's people that have set traps and you know get rid of all the tadpoles and replace them but finally we've got some way to start to control tadpoles that's crazy oh yeah cane toad tadpoles yeah so to me that's the lead story for today yeah yeah human ingenuity awesomeness will improve the environment will save other animals We'll stop having, you know, destruction of waterways mm. because of what cane toads cause. Mm. And, hey, why not do your science homework better? Why not be the person who does the next cool thing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, especially when, you know, something like a cane toad is a, um, a problem that we just deal with all, all the time. It's like, it's funny how that would pique the interest of, of someone who might have a similar pest type problem yeah and give a new way to think about it yeah and again once again it's a weird digression but it strikes me as that's today's best news story yeah we're finally not losing we're not winning but maybe we can now do something about removing cane toads mm. and start to rehabilitate more of our environment which will make people happy because they'll be able to see a beautiful environment without cane toads without <laughs> dead animals that try to eat them yeah and that's awesome and you can go out and look at that environment with a real person and you can take some awesome photos of it and then you can share those photos that you were there with a real person and enjoyed that environment and convince other people they should go visit that environment too. Yeah, with other people. Mm. <laughs> and the risk assessment will be going, well, if there's cane toads here, there's a bloody good chance there's a crocodile. So mm. situational awareness. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> Better enjoyed with friends, I think, will be a, a cool Yep. Yeah, if they look left, you look right and the crocodile goes, damn it, they're paying attention. <laughs> Who thought a podcast on mental health would end with a crocodile going, damn it, they're paying attention? <laughs> well, it, you know, I'm sure we could we, we could argue it's some kind of... The, the, the crocodile was some kind of metaphor. Metaphor for, <laughs> for all the negatives. Well, it's, it's our negativity bias writ large. So imagine a crocodile with sort of the chameleon armor of Predator. Mm. <laughs> There's a sci-fi movie. <laughs> 
<laughs> so the image to have in your heads about all the things that are affecting your mm. your mental health negatively is a crocodile in chameleon armor going, damn it, the humans are looking both ways. Mm. Well, David, um, I'm glad to hear you're okay. I'm glad you're laughing. <laughs> Tim's okay. Yes, I'm also okay. This is good. We hope you're okay, audience. Please reach out if you need. I don't mean that in just a generalist way. If you have the courage, we'd like to hear from you. Yep. Like, if we don't know how to help, we'll help you find someone who does know how to help. Mm. Hello, audience. Thank you for listening to Blind Insights. If you're enjoying the show, please remember to subscribe and share your favourite episodes or leave us a review if you really love us. We'd love to hear from you. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter at Blind Insights or send us a recorded question to the email in the description to feature on an episode. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the Ozcast Network. Peace out. <laughs>